Welcome back. We'll get right into chapter seven. It's just practice. Every practice proposed a lesson. A good coach is more than a tactical expert, more than a skilled artisan honing an army of apprentices. The best breathe hope into their players. A larger vision of purpose focused by every word, every laugh, and every drop of sweat. It's that desire to turn a simple kid's game into something more meaningful, the belief that as a group you can create something more than you could ever create alone, that provides a coach and his comrades real, lasting motivation. Those daily life lessons ultimately erect the house known as a team. The wins and losses come and go, and they are important house guests to enjoy or learn from, but they enter through a separate door and are never allowed permanent residency. A true team houses only the hearts of its players, its family. Each is permitted enough personal space to grow individually, but each is also linked to the others to grow collectively. That makes the coach the home's butler, tailoring the nutrition and instruction to each kid uniquely and ensuring the home shared Wi-Fi connection between the boys is at full clarity and unity without interference from the static of jealousy or selfishness. The message this Monday was always Hollis's favorite word and so engraved on Oski's heart that he now offered it to Turbo's group as if on autopilot. Hollis had always opened the week hammering in some form of the essential foundational block of empathy. It is empathy, the ability not just to understand, but also to actually feel and care about the heart of another person that enables the essential balance in the eternal dichotomy of all sports. A great player starts from a seed of selfishness. He or she must always want the ball, the last shot, to pitch or to back cleanup, to have the key play called in their direction. Great players crave the limelight. They are willing to sacrifice friends and other interests to work long hours for that individual fame. And because of that sweat equity investment, they grow easily angered by unequal commitment or perceived incompetence around them. And that intolerance for mediocrity, for losing, for obstacles and adversaries, and even for your own weaker teammates, is the spur for those extra hours, late nights, workouts, diets, and sacrifices required for individual greatness at anything. The best players want to beat anyone and everyone, any perceived threat, even eat and kill them in a more Mike Tyson moment. Winning requires these kids, so a coach recruits them and releases them throughout the house in hopes that their disease of desire infects the rest. Hollis was no saint in this regard. He started looking for wins in the morning shortly after breathing and breakfast. He made a game in his mind, himself against the world around him. Whether prosecuting in court, playing or coaching at the local gym after work, or parenting at home, even if only for the silent scoreboard inside his head, Hollis counted everything. Cases and verdicts, reps and weights, lessons and wins. There's certain vanity in such thoughts that you can and must beat everyone at everything. But within Hollis's narcissism was also a sense of blue-collar underdog pride. No one handed him wins. He intended to earn every one of them. He would take on all comers, a chip on his shoulder, even against the world often unaware it had challenged him. Whether he shared Linda Baker's struggle to justify his adult successes or remained enslaved and unable to shed his childhood dreams, Hollis needed to win. So to win, Hollis sought the necessary players, 
attracted to their talent, but more to their tenacity, the latter being far more scarce and far more valuable. Such was Hollis's life experience. But Hollis's coaching experience had further taught him that the best teams came not from the best players, but from the best persons. And the best persons require empathy, plain and simple. Per Hollis, the only way for one to have purpose and greater impact, no matter how much individual achievement, was through empathy, to truly love and be loved. The emotional skills of love and empathy, though directly opposed to the selfish concept of winning at all costs, were the only effective glue to hold the group together, to elicit individual commitment to a group effort, as the great Lombardi phrased it. Any group, team, family, community, or even nation belabors this balance. How to get great individuals ambitiously believing their best performance results in the best for all to join together to achieve group goals or to fill the needs of others. It's the invisible hand of free market capitalism arm wrestling the outstretched hand of charity or socialism. Coaches glorify sports as a microcosm of life, but perhaps they mean government or politics. You need capitalism for players to be great, but socialism for them to want to do it together as a great team. Too much team socialism results in a lack of killer instinct or performance under pressure. The eternal nice guy runner-up. Too much capitalism reflects in a lack of grace and character shown to outsiders in victory or defeat and in inner team turmoil bickering over perceived glory. Perhaps Hollis thought too deeply about the greater impact of youth sports. Perhaps Hollis should have been president. Take a deep breath, boys. Smell the baseball. Warm-ups complete. Skill and drill stations up next. Oski started practices just as Hollis did. The empathy injections began early and often, even at 6.15 a.m., sprinkled in among each session. Most lads won't sit for a sermon. So like a doc giving kids their weekly allergy shot, this one hardening them against selfishness, a coach hides the needle while focusing them on the joy, on the scents and sounds and scenes of their mates all around them. Soak it in, guys. The leather, the sounds, the sweaty, dirty faces of your brothers. You'll remember those faces when you're an old man like me. True. It was still so easy for Oski to recall his team of yesteryear, mindful snapshots of Dite, Pookie, and the others. Oski could still vividly recall Pookie's grimy, chubby childhood face, complete with a tennis ball-sized wad of chewing gum in his jaw, staring in from the pitcher's mound to Oski's catcher's mitt during many a sweltering summer practice. Oski could see sweat dripping off his catcher's mask, and beyond those droplets, a dusty 10-year-old D-tape leading off first base, knowing he was going to steal second as surely as Oski knew he was going to throw him out. An outsider might question why coaches stay excited and serious about a kid's game, why coaches pack and cart equipment into the cold to an empty gym before 6 a.m., why fans spend time and travel to sporting events across the land, and why parents taxi their kids and shell out mad money for sports adventures. But an insider knows it's the emotional heroin that brings people back, pain relief and distraction from the hard parts of life, just as it was described in several of Hollis's limericks, one of which Oski had skimmed just before the kids filed in for practice. Journal, page 23. I've loved coffee, ice cream, and every kind of M&M.
legal and wonderful addictions one and all. But coaching a good team is better than any of them, and the lessons learned therein you'll always recall. Only a team can bring you both laughs and tears, then leave you friends and brothers for all the years. I might cut out the others, make myself healthy and trim, but I always coach whenever they call. And thus goes the soothing song of a baseball practice, a ping marking the beat with each grounder Oski stroke to the infielders. Don't let your brothers down now. They're working for you too. Oski worked in a verse on sacrificing for each other, whether a bunt, hitting to the opposite field to move a runner, or getting your body in front of a hot ground ball. A wish of strings from each swing the players took. Cracking soft toss wiffle balls off the gym walls. Don't waste your talents this morning. Everyone else is sleeping in out there. You have a chance to get ahead. Oski repeated Hollis's familiar chorus of making use of every opportunity. A smack from percussion from every glove around the diamond. Focus, gentlemen. Make your next throw your best one. Oski added the melodic lesson of integrity to always offer all they had on each play, no matter fatigue or any mistake the play before. If you could wind the world back 30 years, you might have heard Hollis singing the same song with Oski and the band. And now here was Oski leading, the laughter, the noise, and focus erasing the melancholy of yesterday. But a slam of the gym door disrupted the dance, and Oski held the next play. Now remembering Detay had been strangely late this morning. A fifth grade math teacher by trade, Coach D, might miss a morning travel team practice if he drew bus, cafeteria, or traffic duty. But this wasn't one of those days. What's up, fellas? Detay threw his hand up with a smile, puffing a smoke screen that worked on a team full of distracted kids, but not on a best friend. He walked past the group to the lockers, where he might go to change clothes before practice, but not while already in shirt and tie with only 15 minutes left before school. Oski worried, but he proceeded with the next ground ball so the kids wouldn't. He quickly closed up shop for the team, summarized the day's lesson, set the next practice time, and cut the kids loose toward their classrooms. A quick squeeze of turbo, eyeballing to be sure he had his backpack, and Oski was off to find his pal. All right, sir. Oski slid open the locker room door to see Detay wiping a tear in the mirror. Not him. This is not supposed to happen to Boo. Detay dry heaved, holding back further invisible tears with a conflicted face, the one that showed a grown man longing for rescue, but at the same time wanting to tough it out and be left alone. Where is he now? Oski had feared for Boo, the team's beloved first baseman who had been noticeably absent from two of the last three practices, including today. But for being the roundest figure on the field and least likely to steal a base, you could attribute every other trait of detail, including his childhood home life, to Boo. They'd taken him, all of them. I went by to pick him up like always, and they were gone. The place was empty, and no one will tell me anything. Detay gripped a sink as if to rip it from the wall. He saw his tortured face in the mirror and turned away in anger before bending over, hands on his knees, in exasperation. Christian Casper Williams was the oldest of five brothers, growing up in the same housing project once laying claim to detail. Everything about him was big, most notably his appetite, his toothy grin, and his home run swing. He had instantly been detail's favorite, 
and a no-brainer addition to the team. With his friendly go smile and a name like Casper, the nickname Boo was also a no-brainer. But Boo was far more than just a rideshare partner to Coach D. On those morning and weekend drives together, Dite had learned Boo's heart-wrenching story. Boo's mother had disappeared shortly after the birth of Isaac, the last of the five brothers, when Boo was seven. She had long dealt with drug addiction and had a last known address somewhere in southern Ohio. Their father, Terrence, was occasionally seen around town, most assuredly drinking from a brown bag. By all accounts, he had played little part in the kids' lives, and he was rarely seen at their small two-bedroom apartment. The kids slept two and three to a bed, and thankfully Terrence's sister, Angie, lived two floors down and had managed to keep the utilities on and leave food for the boys after school. Boo was the man of the house, making sure the younger kids bathed, dressed, caught the bus to school in the morning, shared dinner, did their homework, and didn't quarrel before getting to bed each night. This role for him had gone on for almost two school years. Since Terrence's ability to stay out of jail, Angie's assistance with the necessities, and Dita's cab service to extracurricular activities had delayed potential intervention by local social workers. Clearly, Boo required no further empathy or manhood lessons by the fifth grade. And if Dita ever needed an empathy refresher, he would never feel anyone's pain or life more than Boo. He's going to lose his brothers, Oski. I know what they do. They'll split them all up, Dite said as he was still dry heaving in grief. He's going to lose his team. He's going to lose us. He'll be all alone. He's just a kid, Dosky. He needs us. Dite shivered from the shock of this morning, the frustration of his helplessness, and most of all, the memory of his own pain. Oski knew all too well that D had been similarly shuttled away from his home, his siblings, his teammates, and his beloved coach Hollis, and into the state's foster care system at age 12, less than two years after the pinnacle of their childhoods on that corner cake team. Just moments earlier, practice had reminded Oski that if sports were drugs, he had grown up in the royal palace of crack houses and that he longed to keep that indulgence alive for himself and Turbo. For both coach and player and father and son, there was the prospect of euphoric and joyful high from creativity, achievement, impact, and significance and longevity. And now yet again, life reminded him of the frank, cold, come-down clarity, no sport-related lesson can save the world, or in this case, just one innocent kid. All empathy does in these moments is help one feel the pain that much deeper. Yes, Hollis's brand of manhood inspired young men to immerse their hearts in others, to feel and share and help, but that also results in tremendous weight to carry against the world already set to spin in the opposite direction. As an adult, Oski had learned you cannot solve everything or sometimes anything, and he watched Pookie and Dite and eventually Hollis all tumble and fall from that realization. Real life had sobered each of them one by one with pain breaking each of them free from the fairy tale of those dreams and teams. Oski had long since numbed himself from the pain, defiantly considering himself enlightened, a realist. He still believed empathy was the best way to motivate and bring a team together, not a bad trait to instill in young men, but he was no longer romantic about it. Let me see what I can find out. Oski had gone full stoic mode, his means of dodging the hurt. He would promise no miracles, but as Wilmington's only local juvenile justice probation officer, he'd have a chance to pinpoint Boo's status and any possible chance to intervene.
please, Oski, I'm begging you. We can't let this happen. A knock at the locker room door broke the tension. Oski cracked it open, finding the smiling face of Turbo, a kid smile that said, I'm excited and want to walk to class with Coach D, and not, I just heard the bad news about Boo through the door. Oski and D were both thankful for that. Dita discreetly dried his emotion and draped an arm and smile around Turbo, walking him toward the school hallway as Oski headed for the parking lot. Let's go learn something, sir. Integrity. Another Hollis lesson. Trudge on with your best foot forward, always, but especially when times are tough. In his words, anyone can do the right thing when you're winning, but a man provides. He takes care of others even when the sky is falling. Okay, that wraps chapter seven. We're over a third of the way through the book and we actually have one of the major conflicts set up now with the uh, booze childhood crisis. Uh, Hope you enjoy it. We'll pick up with chapter eight next time. Talk to you soon.